Good evening and welcome to this week's episode of What the Friday. Now, please bear with me because I have a sore throat, so I might sound a little rough. So I just wanted to apologize in advance. So, you know, we talk a lot about adults who kill. We've talked about a couple of teens who have murdered someone. And we've talked about parents who kill. But tonight, we're turning the tables around to kids who kill. And I do need to add that while I was researching and writing this episode, y'all, my sweet mama had an accident and she had to be taken to the hospital. Well, right now she's, they're waiting for a bed to come open, um, in the neurological unit. Um, because she has a brain bleed that they're watching. So now this episode may not be as long as I would have liked for it to be, but I didn't want to just not do anything at all. So, without further ado, let's get it started. Mystery, Murder, and Magic proudly presents... What the Friday? And here's your host... We tend to think that all children are precious little gifts, and while they are, I mean, you know, some have a dark side. Now, it could be from, like, mental illness or from a situation that the kids are in, but there are kids who do kill, and tonight we're going to be talking about a few of their cases. Now... This is, you know, one of those darker subjects, but, um, you know, it can't be left out. Now, recently, this was back at the end of September of this year, in Harris County, Texas, a 17-year-old girl named Megan Elliott was stabbed to death while her parents slept in a nearby room. When authorities arrived on the scene, her twin brother, Benjamin, was attempting to give her CPR, and it's believed that it was Benjamin who had called 911. Authorities responded to the home around 5 a.m., and the parents say they were awakened by Benjamin yelling for help and performing CPR. And get this, now, the parents wouldn't allow investigators to search the home at first or until they had a search warrant, and so it took a few hours to get that, so it took a little longer than the usual amount of time to process the house. Now, there's not a lot of information about like why he did it or anything, but Benjamin has been charged. That's right, the twin brother. He's been charged in the death of his twin sister, and he will be tried as an adult. Now, this just blows my mind because, I mean, yeah, you know, siblings do kill each other at times. Um. But twins are normally just like this, the closest of all siblings. And it shocked their neighbors, too, because they described the two of them as being very close. And they had been seen walking with each other to the bus stop. And somebody, one of the neighbors said they had just recently seen Benjamin holding an umbrella out for his sister so she didn't get soaked in a downpour. Well, like I said, there's not a whole lot of details in this case because it's somewhat fresh. But as soon as I know more, I'll update. Now, 
the murderer in that story, he was 17, so yeah, that's pretty much an adult. But there have been a lot of kids, much younger than Benjamin, who have committed murders over the course of time. Now, Eric Smith is probably one of the first ones that I really remember hearing about, um, that I can recall hearing about, I guess I should say. But he committed a murder when he was only 13 years old, and I'll never forget that. Now, at that time, I had just became the parent, a new parent. Courtney, you know, was like three months old. And it seems like when you're either pregnant or you've got a new baby, you hear all these horror stories. I don't know. Maybe maybe it just seems that way because you're like suddenly more alert about these things in the world. I don't know. But anyway, this case was that shocker for me because this happened on August the 2nd of 1993. So Courtney was like three and life was just good. But on that day, Eric Smith was in a Steuben County, New York park when he met four-year-old Derek Roby. Now, Derek was walking along through the park on his way to summer camp when Eric lured him into nearby woods where he hit the four-year-old in the head with a rock, strangled him, and then sodomized him with a stick. Well, then he decided to go through Derek's lunch bag and he smashed a banana that was in that lunch bag and then he took his Kool-Aid and he poured it all over Derek. Now, when the case went to court, Eric's defense argued that he was mentally ill. Now, the jury also heard how, as a toddler, Eric threw these really escalated temper tantrums. And I know, I don't know, like, one single toddler that's never had a temper tantrum. But this was, like, the next level of temper tantrums. Because he would bang his head on the floor. Like, just repeatedly. And they said he also had some speech issues. But now the judge and the jury was not accepting that mental illness um, plea coming from his defense. Now, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to nine years to life in prison. Well, over the years, Eric came up for parole ten times, but he was denied every single time. Derek's parents, Dale and Doreen Roby, were staunch supporters of keeping Eric behind bars. They even lobbied for more time between parole hearings of violent offenders, wanting it changed from every two years to every five years. Well, I guess the 11th time was the charm for Eric because earlier this very month, Eric, who is now 41 years old, was granted parole. Um, he's currently at a medium security uh, prison in the Catskills and he could be released as early as November the 17th. Now I do want to say too, he's not always been in a medium security prison. He was in a very high security prison for, I would say the majority of his sentence. Now, why would a 13 year old pick some random little boy to murder? Well, it's been said, and I am in no way, like, making any excuses, but it's been said that Eric was a loner, and he had been picked on a lot in his young life. Now, Eric had bright red hair, he wore glasses, 
and he was picked on for those reasons. Now, maybe he had a lot of anger built up and he just snapped. And I'm sure some of y'all might ask, why would a mom let such a little kid walk anywhere by themselves? Well, the thing is, is you have to understand that things were so different back then. You know, kids could go outside and play in most areas of our country without supervision. But his mom said that this was the first time that she'd let him walk by himself. And it was only a block away, so she decided to let him go without her. Well, Derek kissed his mama and told her, you know, goodbye or whatever. And only five short minutes later, Derek's life was stolen from him. Now, we often hear that murderers offer their help in investigations, and Eric was no different. Four days after the murder, Eric walked into the police department and asked if he could help solve the crime. Now, at first, Eric did not see Derek in that area, but later he changed the story, and he said that he had seen Derek at an open field that was very close to the crime scene. And not only that, he described the clothes that Derek had on down to the very lunch bag that he was carrying. And through all of this, Eric was excited. It was it was just like he was enjoying it or something. But when they asked where he had last seen Derek, Eric started getting somewhat emotional. And at that point, he dropped his head onto the table sorry like i said i've got a sore throat um he raised two slightly shaken fists and with a voice that was cracking he asked you think i killed him don't you well after that eric asked to take a break and his dad brought him some kool-aid well it was known by authorities that derek had kool-aid poured all over him so eric's reaction to the kool-aid that his dad had just brought him was not very shocking at all to the authorities because when Eric's dad or yeah Eric's dad I'm confusing Eric and Derek but Eric's dad when he handed him the Kool-Aid he threw that glass of Kool-Aid to the floor now friends and family started thinking that Eric knew something about this murder but of course they didn't think he was the one who had committed it I mean, who would suspect such a young kid of doing something so horrible like that? Well, after the murder, Eric began spending every night at a neighbor's house. He asked that neighbor about DNA testing and what would happen if they found out it was a kid who had did it. Well, two days after Derek was buried, Eric broke down and confessed. Now, earlier I mentioned that mental illness and his behavior as a child was brought up during his trial well i want to go back to that for a minute his adoptive dad told um him at some point that or he had said at some point that eric had asked him for his help with dealing with his anger issues and all that he could tell him was to hold on to it and he also told him that when he was young and he felt that way He'd beat a weight bag in the family barn until he was just too tired to do anything else. And a defense psychiatrist diagnosed Eric with intermittent explosive disorder and went on to say that when a child suffers with that, 
that after they work it out of their system, usually they just go back to appearing to be a normal child. Almost like nothing had even happened. So maybe Eric was a little, maybe he had, he was a lost soul with a mental illness, you know? But it still doesn't excuse what he did to four-year-old Derek Roby. Since he's been paroled, I really hope that was a wise decision on the parole board's part. And I guess time will tell. And I can imagine that Derek's parents are pretty upset. Um, I did read that they didn't have really anything to say at that point. Alright, so now the next one we're talking about is Lionel Tate. In 2001, Lionel Tate, who was only 14, became the youngest person in America to be sentenced in prison without, or life in prison, sorry, without parole. Now, three years prior to his sentencing, Tate had been arrested and charged with the murder of six-year-old Tiffany Eunuch of Broward County, Florida. Now, Tate was accused of, of stomping on Tiffany so hard that her liver ripped. Now, Tate's mom, Kathleen, was babysitting Tiffany, but she had left the two kids to play while she took a nap upstairs. His defense, came, um, like his attorneys, claimed that Tate accidentally killed Tiffany like he didn't mean to, because he was actually showing her some moves that he had learned from watching professional wrestling on TV. Well, not only was her liver torn, but she also had skull fractures, a fractured rib, and the, her brain was swollen. Now, the prosecution argued that these injuries would be the same thing as falling from the top of a three-story building. Now, Tate's mom said that her son was just playing with little Tiffany, but y'all... He weighed 170 pounds at the time this happened. And it had been said that he had the reputation of a schoolyard bully. When the jury came back with a guilty verdict after only three hours of deliberation, she couldn't believe it because she was just sure that he was going to be acquitted, but he wasn't. Well, you know, it was the judge's decision to, you know, sentence Mr. Tate and he gave him a life in prison sentence with no chance of parole. I guess a lot of people thought that was pretty strict for a 14 year old. But the thing is, is little Tiffany lost her life and she'll never come back. You know, I mean, it's so sad. And yeah, it's sad that a 14 year old would have to send spend his life in prison, but I mean, I don't know. I've got so many opinions, but you know, you just can't slap him on the wrist and be like, okay, he's 14 years old. He didn't know any better because I believe at 14 years old, he should have known better. Now, after the sentence and even the prosecution joined in with the defense and asking for a more lenient sentence for Tate. And in January of 2004, a state appeals court overturned his conviction, saying that he hadn't had a mental evaluation before the trial. Well, this gave Tate the opportunity to accept a plea bill. Ah, gosh, a plea deal that had been offered to him before he ever went on trial. And that would be one year of house arrest and 10 years probation. One stinking year for 
I mean, on house arrest too. So it's not even like being in prison. But for taking the life of another human being. I mean, that's just a joke. But that didn't last long because the September of that very same year, he violated his probation when he was seen outside his house and he was carrying a four-inch blade or a four-inch knife. At that point, an additional five years of zero-tolerance probation was tacked on to the probation he was already on. And that's not all he did while he was out, okay? Because on May 23rd of 2005, Tate was charged with armed burglary, burglary with battery, armed robbery, and violation of probation when he met a Domino's pizza delivery driver outside of one of his friend's apartment and he greeted him with a loaded gun. Well, the delivery guy dropped the pizzas and um, he ran away, but then um, Tate went back into his friend's apartment and apparently he was uninvited and he assaulted someone while he was inside that apartment. On February 19, 2008, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the pizza robbery and that is to run concurrently with the 30 year sentence that he got for violating his probation now the last one we're going to talk about tonight happened back in the 1800s his name was Jesse Pomeroy and he was considered a natural born killer Not a whole lot is known about his early life, but he was raised by his widowed mom in the slums of South Boston. When Jesse was only 11 years old, he began torturing other kids. In the fall and winter of 1871, Jesse took seven younger boys to a hidden spot, and once he was there, he would strip them of all their clothing and then tie them up. After that, he would attack the boys, severely beating them. Now, at one point in this crime spree, he began using a knife and with one of his victims, he even poked pins into their skin. Now, the thing about Jesse was that he had a cleft lip and one of his eyes was completely white. So, it was pretty easy to identify him. Well, he got caught and his punishment, he was sent to a reform school. Now, he was supposed to be there until he turned 21, but if he had good behavior, he would be released earlier. Well, Jesse knew that, and he used it to his advantage, so he was released only a year and a half after he arrived. And when he was released, he had a new obsession, and that was homicide. His first victim was a 10-year-old little girl that he kidnapped and killed in March of 1874 and just a couple of months later he did it again to a four-year-old boy four years old now y'all but this little boy was so brutally beaten and stabbed that he was almost decapitated well when police talked to him they asked if he had killed that little boy because the little boy was the first one to be found so Jesse's response was I suppose I did Well, not long after that, Jesse's mom moved out of the house they had been living in, and um, whoever owned that house decided to do some renovations. Well, when they started pulling up floorboards, they found that little girl's body, and it was very mutilated, they said. But Jesse was glad to confess to that murder, 
And as a matter of fact, he confessed to 27 more murders. Twelve bodies were found on the property where he had grown up. Now, most people in that area, they wanted Jesse to pay with his life for his crimes. But he was only 14 years old and the governor just wouldn't have it. So instead of a death sentence, he was given a life sentence to be spent in solitary confinement. Now, can you imagine, at the age of 14, you're sentenced to solitary confinement for the rest of your life? Well, I did read, too, that after, I want to say, when he was around 41 years old, he was removed from solitary and moved to an asylum, and he spent the rest of his life there. So he did have a little bit of human interaction. But he died at the age of 72 in 1932. Now, like I said at the beginning of the show, I had planned on having a much longer show tonight. But with my mom's accident, I just didn't have time to finish the research and the writing. But I'm going to continue this this subject on another episode. I do want to just briefly touch on the hot topic of this week for a moment. Now, it was announced on Thursday that the remains that had been found in Florida on Wednesday were identified as Braun Laundries. Now, when the news broke out of that, I was sitting in the ER with my mom. So, I wasn't able to, like, go live with an update. But I did tap on that notification, and I was just absolutely floored at the picture that WFLA chose to use at the top of the story in their app. It's a picture of Brian, and I don't know if it was photoshopped or not, but it gives this illusion that Brian has an angelic halo glowing around his head. Now, this is strictly my opinion, and I'm entitled to it, but this is like a slap in the face to Gabby Petito's family. Now, I don't know if they they see it that way. I haven't heard. I don't even know if they've seen that picture. But I will say this, that if this situation involved my daughter, and then there was announcement that this person of interest um, remains were found, and I saw a picture portraying this person like this, I would be absolutely livid, okay? Um, I don't know if they realize that's what it looked like. I don't know. I haven't heard anything. Um, but, yeah, that's all I've got for tonight. I want you to keep my mom in, in your thoughts if you if you can do that for me. Um Now, I'll be back in the morning with the Weekend Weird Files. Y'all have a really good night.